Rhode Island Labor History Society is an organization that's been around since 1987. We're dedicated to promoting and preserving Rhode Island's labor history and also the history of uh, community organizations, working people organizations. There used to be a labor history society for every New England state, and we are the last organization standing. So we've got a core group of really dedicated folks who go to executive board meetings on Friday afternoons at 5 o'clock instead of uh, hitting a bar. They're, uh, they're here <laughs> planning programs like this one to make sure our labor history stays alive. We do a lot of different things. We hold an annual awards banquet every August at the Roger Williams Park Casino in Providence where we honor some prominent uh, labor leaders and other community leaders uh, who've made great contributions to, uh, to our state and to the working people who, uh, who live here. Uh, we also run programs like this. We uh, provide funding for secondary school students who do labor-oriented projects when they uh, participate in the labor uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, History Day uh, to make sure and encourage people to do labor programming. Um, we uh, do a, a couple of mailings every year. We mailed out uh, some copies of a uh, Rhode Island uh, History Journal. Uh, we have uh, at the printer now uh, a, uh, a graphic booklet that's going to go to all Labor History Society members, uh, you know, describing some uh, Rhode Island labor history in a re really readable form. And uh, to that point, Maddie, who's uh, sitting on the aisle over there, uh, say hi, Matt, you know, wave to Maddie, has left some uh, small graphic booklets of her own uh, doing. You, know, you should check that out and go on the Uprise uh, website if you want to check out a couple of things where, you know, she's, uh, she's the artist and also writing small vignettes on different uh, labor stories, including an 1199 strike. So thank you for, thank you for your effort to uh, preserve labor history. Bill Kennedy is in the front row, and Scott believes you're the oldest Rhode Island Labor History Society member. I'm not going to ask people to produce their licenses to prove you wrong. but <laughs> um, In terms of what's coming up for the Labor History Society, you know, this is, uh, you know, it's December. This is our last event uh, this year. We did have a great speaker series with Pat Crowley and Keith Stokes on African-American labor history earlier this year. Our board is going to meet in a couple of months to plan next year's activities, but I, I do want to note a couple of things. Uh, we've had a couple of labor-oriented tours of Slater Mill. Uh, Joey DeFrancesco, one of our board members, has organized a couple of those in the past, and we're going to ask him to uh, do that again uh, this coming spring. And uh, the Stadium Theater has a lot of different programs, uh, you know, a lot of bands and plays. They're running a play in March on Newsies, which is a story about uh, paper boys um, organizing. And uh, we're going to buy a group of tickets, have a reception. Uh, so mark your calendars for March 20th. That's the Sunday afternoon matinee that hopefully a bunch of us will be able to get together you know, uh, have you know, get together and ha over some food before the play, and then uh, watch the watch the labor-oriented play up at the Stadium Theater in Woonsocket. So uh, we're a volunteer organization. We've got a 
Uh, we've got a strong membership. We have about 120 people who've paid the whopping sum of 150 bucks to be lifetime members of the Labor History Society. Thank you uh, for all of you in the audience who are, li who are lifetime members. And I know most of you did it just so Scott Malloy wouldn't harass you for <laughs> annual deals. I know that's what I did. Uh, I got tired of the harassment, and I said, I'll, I'll, I'll write a big check just to get Scott off my back. Uh, but we appreciate the, the union organizations that belong to us. Uh, we have about 40 different unions and community groups that pay annual dues. And it's through them, the life members, and then we have a, a total of about 300 members, as I said, uh, who are members of society. And, and it, that's a good group. You know, that's a consistent group of supporters. You know, you're our mailing list, you're our participants, you're our financial supporters, and, and we appreciate all of that. So Scott Malloy's been talking about putting a program together for organizing in the 60s and 70s for a couple of years now, and we're glad to see it come to fruition this morning. Uh, we're we're going to start with uh, two people on the panel. We're going to take a short break in about an hour, make sure uh, all the donuts that Mike D'Amico bought us are, are eaten, and then we'll reconvene for the second panel of three panelists. So um, let me start with uh, almost no introduction, because neither of these two gentlemen uh, need an introduction, but uh, I do want to make a program note. The third person on the first panel is Kathy Collette, and unfortunately uh, she wasn't able to make... Uh, make the presentation today. So we're down to five panelists instead of six. You know, Kathy was a longtime AFSCME activist, leader, national union leader, international union uh, leader, uh, and probably most importantly, past president of the Labor History Society. Uh, we miss her this morning and, and wish her well, and, and we all look forward to seeing her soon. Uh, but uh, Scott and George are going to kick us off this morning. I've asked them to stay at these seats because uh, we, we are taping this for posterity. We are a labor history society for, uh, for all, to make sure that Paul Hubbard uh, cap captures all the uh, audio. Um, you know, Scott, uh, most importantly for me, was, uh, was a founder of this important organization, the Rhode Island Labor History Society, um, you know, former bus driver, union leader, URI professor who's been more active after his retirement from URI probably than anything, somewhat to his disappointment. Uh, Scott's, uh, Scott's on our panel, and of course George Nee, who uh, really needs no introduction. Um, you know, George is going to talk about his past, but George is still at it as president of our um, Rhode Island AFL-CIO, heads the Institute for Labor Studies and Research. Uh, two good guys who I'm not going to talk about because I know they've got plenty to say and uh, we want to make sure we get you out of here on time. So um, I've asked George to start us off to make sure that he had enough time knowing that uh, Scott has a tendency to, to <laughs> <laughs> fill time one, one time. You know, nature abhors a vacuum and uh, that's how things work. So George, uh, get us started. All right. Thanks, Jim. And... Uh, Scott missed his calling in being an attorney and making a closing argument for days. <laughs> anyway, thank you for that introduction. I want to set the tone a little bit of how, how I got to Rhode Island and what the climate was like in Rhode Island when I came here for organizing. Um, I uh, quit school uh, in uh, 1970 <laughs> Uh, to become a full-time organizer with the United Farm Workers who were on strike in California. Uh, and I met them in 1968. 
uh, was when I was a student. I decided to quit school and work for the Farm Workers Union full time out in Boston. Uh, it was a pretty good salary, five dollars a week plus room and board. Uh, I have to say, I never lost a pound because they taught us how to hustle and make sure we always had a good meal at someone's house. We'd go to a volunteer's house and knock on the door, and you'd look and say, "Hey, do I smell something?" And they'd say, "Yeah." So, oh, well, are you eating? Yeah. Would you like to join us? I said, "Yes." And that's how we were trained. That's how you made relationships with people. So. I uh, was involved in that for uh, many, many years, and then in 1970, uh, the farm workers were successful in getting a contract in California. They began a strike in the Salinas Valley in 1971, uh, or 1970, and in 1971, my mentor, Marcos Munoz, who was an original grape striker in 1965, uh, sent, sent me to Rhode Island. Uh, he said, uh, run the boy you've got to run the lettuce boycott in Rhode Island. So I came to Rhode Island. I uh, had one name uh, of a union leader. I want to remember him always. His name was Gene Ryan, and he was the uh, business agent for the Retail Wholesale Department Store Union uh, who had organized the outlet company, the Shepherd's Workers, and that was my name. So I came down. I met with Gene. He said, what do you want? I said, well, I need, a, I need an office, I need a secretary, I need a printing thing, I need some money, uh, and I need a place to live. He says, okay, I got you covered. So the moral of that story is always ask for everything, because you never know. The guy might say yes. So I started my labor career in Rhode Island with the farm workers. I met a lot of labor people. Uh, and then the, the boycott was successful with the lettuce thing. Then I started a group called the Rhode Island Workers Association, which uh, began, uh, we were organizing unemployed people. We had groups in nine different uh, communities. And uh, we, were, we were troublemakers. Uh, we were fighting, think, this is 1972, 73. We were fighting for interpreters at the Department of Employment and Training, the Welfare Department. We were getting, not arrested, we were getting thrown out of places on a regular basis. Uh, but we were troublemakers, and Rick reminded me to tell a little story. We came up with this law about the Hill-Burton Act. Anyone ever heard of the Hill-Burton Act? All right, there's a few people in the room. The Hill-Burton Act allowed for unemployed people, or poor people, in this case we were focused on the unemployed, because the hospitals were built with federal money, their payback was to give free care. And a lot of hospitals became aware of it, we pressured them. Pawtucket Memorial, which has always been a pariah in Rhode Island, didn't. And so as a result of that, uh, we had sit-ins, and we were thrown out of there on a regular basis, and we finally got them to agree to start providing health insurance to unemployed people. So I, the problem is I'm going to go off on too many different tangents here. So, so let, me, let me get to the organizing part of things. So in 1975... I got a call from the Farm Workers Union. I was asked to go out to California and be a security guard, bodyguard, whatever the term we want to use, for Cesar Chavez, who was the head of the union. His son-in-law, who I had worked with them when they were in Boston. I found out later the reason they wanted me to come out there is because if Cesar stood in front of me when they were trying to shoot him, they'd get me instead of him. And that was the goal of being a bodyguard. You had to be bigger <laughs> than Cesar. But um, during that experience, um, 
out in California, the farm workers had just, they just passed a law in 1975 to give farm workers the right to organize. Think about that. Now, bring it forward to 2022, farm workers still don't have the right to organize in America. So, farm workers get the right to organize. I go out there, I start, we do a thousand mile march. And during this march, I decide that I'm gonna come back to Rhode Island and start my own union. So I got a lot of advice from Caesar because we walked every day. Uh, we did a thousand miles in 40 days because that's spiritual, you have to do 40 days. That's part of the biblical thing with the Farm Workers Union. So I came back to Rhode Island in 1976 and on January 1st, 1976, I started with Gary Hamblin who had also been uh, involved in the, in the boycott, I started the Rhode Island Workers Union. So we made a transformation from the Rhode Island Workers Association to the Rhode Island Workers Union. I had no members and no money, <laughs> just for the record. And people said, you can't, you can't start a union. How can you start a union? I said, because you just start a union. And Caesar gave me some very good advice, because I said, well, maybe I should go and talk to the labor leaders in Rhode Island. And he said, no, don't talk to anybody. Just go out and organize. When you get to a point where you're successful, they'll come to you. But if you go to them, you're going to give away this group and that group and that group, and you'll end up with nothing. So I said, okay. So I went. I was respectful. I went to the labor leadership at the time and told them what I was going to do. And I told them, I will not raid anybody. Uh, I don't expect you to give me the same uh, respect. But I'm not going to raid anybody. And they said, well, who are you going to organize? I said, I'm going to organize jewelry workers, healthcare workers, and clerical workers. And they said, why? Because no one else is doing it. <laughs> and the rest of the labor movement is sitting on their ass in plain English. And they said, well, Tommy Palacastro from the steel workers was the president at the, of the AFL at the time, and later it was Ed McElroy. But they didn't disagree, but they just said, you know, you're going to have a hard time doing this. I said, yeah, I figured that out. So the first group I organized was a group of bus drivers for the elderly and the handicapped called Senior Citizens Transportation, which, by the way, if we went back to that, would be in, in better shape than when we are now because they privatized the whole thing. This was a nonprofit run out of uh, a building, on, I mean, a trailer in Warwick City Hall. Now, all of this work I had done with the Rhode Island Workers Association had led to the contact. So I made this transformation from a community organization to a union the same way that Caesar had done that with the, with, uh, in California. He had been a community organizer and then became a union organizer because he realized it was the union that was going to give people the stability and the economic security for the future. So I had that in my mind. So I got these contacts from people, and all of a sudden I've got this group of 100 bus drivers that we, that we uh, organized. January, June 16, 1976, my birthday, I'm on strike. <laughs> I organized this group of people, I'm on strike, Warwick City Hall, pouring rain, and I'm saying, all right, God, you've got to help me here. Because these people think I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and they have a lot of faith and trust in me. And I got 100 people on strike. I got no members, no money. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. But they wanted to go on strike. I mean, I didn't ask them to go on strike. 
God answered. Anna Tucker, God love her, who is the director of elderly affairs for Joe Garrity, calls me up at night, 8 o'clock. George, can we get these people back to work? I said, I think so. Why? Well, Governor Garrity is really pissed off. These people have been calling all day long, and they love your members. Your members pick up, pick them up. They bring the groceries up to the third floor. We got to get this settled. I said, sure. When do you want to meet? She said, I'd like to meet with you about 11 o'clock tonight. I said, well, can you bring some money? And she, said, <laughs> and she says, I'm authorized to give you a good deal. 11 o'clock at night, I met at, uh, that's when the state had mediators for labor disputes. We met at the Department of Labor. Two hours later, we have a deal. And she says, can they get back to work tomorrow? <laughs> I said, I met with the committee. I said, they'd really like to go back to work tomorrow. Can you do it? She says, oh, no, we love, our, we love the people we work. We're sorry we had to go on strike. We'll be back to, that was my first, my first union experience in, in Rhode Island. So then, I get a call. I was leafleting nursing homes and hospitals, and you know, people say that you don't do that now, but we, I, had no, I didn't know anybody. They didn't know me. I get a call from a nurse's aide at Hopkins Health Centers in North Providence, Lee Piper, God rest her soul. She had the foulest mouth of anyone I've ever met. <laughs> so she said, I'll get a, I, what's this thing about a union? She said, on the, on the phone. I said, I'll, will you meet with me? I said, yeah. So I go into this restaurant up on uh, Mineral Spring Avenue near Hopkins Health Center. She's got 30 workers there. And she said, I'm going to tell you something right now. This is in front of someone. Uh, if you ever screw us, I will make sure I remove a part of your body, which I won't mention in front of these people. <laughs> that was my first experience with Lee Piper. So uh, we ended up organizing Hopkins Health Center. Now, remember, I got no members and no money. I got this one group here. And we're like, the, the, the company, Hopkins, the, the nursing home, had triple time for benefits. They had a great vacation plan. They had great staffing. And they, they cut it all from the workers. So all of a sudden, they, they want to form a union. So we, I filed for an election there. Then I find out they're part of a chain called the United Healthcare Facilities, and they have Hopkins Health Centers, Waterman Heights, Cardi's, and Wayland. So within four months, I have elections at all four places. I win them all. Now I have 700 members. <laughs> and they made a big mistake. They had one of the best, most vicious anti-union law firms out of Boston. And they got so pissed off that we won the elections, they fired them. So here, here I am. They said, the guy calls me up and says, why don't we just negotiate? I said, well, that's a good idea. So why don't you take the initiative? I said, that's, a very, that's an even better idea. So I went up to Providence College, and they had this labor thing where you picked up all the language. So I figured out how to get the best language for all these things. Now, what they had done. They had given them a 25 cent an hour raise right before the election. So I figured we were never going to win that thing. So I had to convince the workers at that point 
that we've got our raise. That's your rate. You're not going to get another raise. They gave it to you to stop you from winning. What you have to do is make sure you have good language because that's what's going to protect you down the road. And, you know, so we ended up getting an excellent contract which still exists today. You know, uh, 19, we organized in 1976. That's 20 points. That's 40. That's a long time ago. Long time. It's in the 40-plus years. So that was the foundation of the organizing. Now, the climate at the time, I have to be respectful, but in 1971 through in the 70s, the labor movement primarily was asleep at the switch. And I have to be honest about that. And they were coming out off of some good economic times. They didn't want to organize. A lot of the union leaders were afraid of growth, and they were also afraid of bringing in new members because it could disrupt their position in leadership. So there wasn't a great attitude or atmosphere towards organizing. And there was also this fear that was developing in the community at the time because there was an influx at that time of Latino workers. And so then they were like, oh, geez, these people are out there causing trouble and organizing and they're involved with all these groups. And all of the things that we accept today was not easy in those days. We, I, my friend Dwayne, Scott, our beloved Chuck Schwartz, we were kind of the pariahs of the labor movement, to be very honest. We were not very well accepted. Uh, and we had to kind of fight our way in. I want to just tell uh, a couple of stories because Tracy, my friend Tracy's going to talk about the jewelry part of it. But I want to give you an example of what was happening at that time. I went to St. Michael's Church in South Providence. And so I knew a lot of the workers there and a lot of the people there worked in the jewelry industry. So I was organizing, I, you know, I was passing out things. We, she's going to talk a little bit more about this, but we set up some pre-organizing groups. And so this guy's approaching me at the church, and they say, listen, we work at Esposito Jewelry. Uh, we'd like to form a union. I said, okay. So we met at the church, and there was about 300 people there at the time. And it was split. Half of what the Latinos referred to as the North Americans and half as the Latinos. <laughs> and this is how the organizing drive started. This was a day for some of the younger people. There was a time when you got paid with a, a check and you used to go to the bank and cash it. Well, <laughs> the, workers, the, the workers would look over the shoulder of the North American workers and they'd see that they were being paid more for the same work. So they got angry and they started a campaign. And you know, I kept saying to them over and over and over again, we can't win with just the Latino workers. We've got to get everybody. So we kept working it and kept working it. I get a call one night. A guy calls me up and says, listen, we're at the church. We're going on strike tomorrow. I said, excuse me? I said, we're, we're at St. Michael's. We've got about 75, 80 people here. We're going on strike tomorrow. Come down to the, come down to the church. So I go down to the church. There's 75, 80 people there. And they said, we're going on strike tomorrow. You're going to be with us, right? I said, uh, well, I really don't think this is a good idea. <laughs> well, listen, listen to what happened today. One of the foremen 
took one of our members, smashed him up against the wall, gave him enough of a injury that he had to go to the hospital. We're not taking it anymore. We don't care. We know you're right. We know we should wait. But we're going on strike tomorrow morning. So I said, then we're going on strike tomorrow morning. As it turned out, we had to get that worker out of the country or out of the state to New York because they were trying to find him to deport him. That's, I mean, so some of these things that were going on today were going on then. Unfortunately, they're still going on today. So 7 o'clock in the morning, go to Esposito Jewelry, have 100-plus Latino workers out on strike. And the company gets a little nervous, so they tell the workers to park their cars all over the industrial area there. Please, please come. Now, first day, three of these guys approach me and said, here's what we're going to do. The first group of workers that come in with their cars, <clears throat> we're going to turn them over, take them out of the car, break their legs, <laughs> and, burn, and burn the cars. <laughs> said, okay. I said, that's the way we have to do it in our country, because if we either, we either win or we die. I said, okay. <laughs> I said, could we try something else? Could we just try to have a good, strong picket line, and maybe they won't try to cross the picket line? Well, yeah, okay, we'll try that. So we had a good, we had, they, they got scared, so they parked their cars all over the industrial park. The policeman comes up to me later on in the day and says, I know that you probably have no involvement in this at all, but I just have to ask. We have reports of 400 flat tires in, in this area. I said, well, you know, I don't live far from here, and I'm not surprised. It's a tough area. <laughs> at noon? I said, well, no, any, at any time. It's a tough area. So I said, look, we all know what's happening, and that's fine. Just don't hurt anybody. And that was the response we got from the police. <laughs> so anyway, we're on strike. To this day, I make a donation every year to Amos House and Macaulay House. Amos House used to come down and feed us for lunch, and Macaulay House fed us for, for, uh, for dinner. So we always had this support from the community. So we, did, we weren't successful. It was the first strike in the jewelry industry in, since the 30s. It scared the living hell out of the employer community. The reason we lost the strike is that when you're, when you're on strike, the employer can call for an election. They waited until the people went back to the Dominican and the other country, and then they called for an election, and we ended up losing the election. But we, we did kind of scare the hell out of the, uh, out of the people in the industry. I found out later a couple of employers came to me and said, you know, we had to end up giving a lot of good raises to people. The other thing they did, it's really amazing. Has anyone ever heard of the Marielitas? Ah, a little history here. The Marielitas were the people that Fidel Castro sent out of Cuba <laughs> because they were malcontents in Cuba. They were been in the prisons. They were mentally ill. They were. They didn't want them there, so they sent them to America. That's where they brought up. To, to, to break the strike, you know, after, uh, and so, you know, so they, they had the election, we lost the thing, and then they replaced all the people. So anyway, that was, that was the climate for the organizing in, uh, in 1970. Uh, that, that strike was, 
Mm. I think that was after the year fell asleep. So about or maybe maybe 1980. Yeah. The other group, the other org place that I organized, uh, which has kind of got an interesting story to it because it talks about the paternalism that used to exist. Providence Health Centers, which still exist today, SEIU 1199 still represents them. So I go to organize this place, and it is run by, uh, there were about maybe 120, 130 workers, run by two factions. Joey went on Tommaso, who ran the Federal Hill, I mean the Federal Hill and the uh, Olneyville section, and Buddy George. Now, Buddy George was a black guy who ran a group called Fact Finding. I don't think he ever saw a fact or would know a fact. <laughs> but <laughs> he had a group called Fact Finding Supports. I had Buddy George I mean, and Joey Juan Tommaso. And they each had their own little group of people that they took care of. Their ladies, they used to refer to them as. So we got this organizing drive at the Providence Health Centers. The union, my office, union office is on Broadway. Uh, that drive cost mm, four tires and two windshields. Uh, I would walk out and all of a sudden my windshield would be busted. Or I'd walk out after you know, two, fires, uh, two tires would be flat. And there was a few threats of altercation. But anyway, we organized, uh, we organized the place. And then we saw how bad it was. These people were making like, I don't know, 20, 25%. It was a small group of five, primarily five or six white women and five or six black women, and they were the special ones, and they were getting 20, 25% more than the other people. So when we negotiated the contract, uh, we red circled them, said, you won't get a raise until everyone else catches up with you. So. We have the union meeting on Broadway, and Buddy George comes walking down the sidewalk with five or six women behind him. And I said, oh, this is going to be trouble, because this guy's got, he's kind of got a reputation as a tough guy. So I see them coming, and I said, okay. So I said, uh, welcome, members. You, you're not going in. And he looks at me like, what the, who the hell are you? I said, I got to make sure these ladies are protected. I said, no, they, they, they're, they're fine. They can go in. They don't like this contract. So I wouldn't expect them to. Uh, but they're fully able to go in, and they can vote, vote no. But you're not going anywhere. You stay right outside. Oof, I didn't know what I was doing. Good thing when, you know, when you're young, you do this stuff. You don't really <laughs> care that. You don't think about it that much. Well, Buddy stayed outside, they came in, the contract was negotiated like by an 80% margin, and the Providence Health Centers still has a union today. So, so we did some other organizing. Uh, we, we got some very good contracts eventually at those four nursing homes. Then we organized Charles Gate Nursing Home. Uh, we had some other, and I'm gonna, I don't wanna steal uh, Tracy's thunder, because she's gonna talk a little bit about more on the, uh, on the jewelry side of things, but it was, um, it was a time when eventually a lot of some other unions started to organize. The SEIU, well, no, it wasn't the SEIU, then it was 1199 was doing some serious organizing in Rhode Island. Women and Infants was organized during that time period, the Jewish Home for the Aged, uh, Parkview Nursing Home, a few other ones, which eventually 
our union, Rhode Island Workers Union, I affiliated with the SEIU in 1979. Um, and I had always intended to affiliate with an AFL-CIO union, but I wanted to do it on my terms. So in 1979, I was approached by a number of different unions, but the SEIU uh, at that time was under the leadership of George Hardy and then eventually was under the leadership of John Sweeney. So when I affiliated, John Sweeney, who became the, later the president of the AFL-CIO, was the president of, and they were really committed to organizing. So I cut a pretty good deal with them. I got a uh, organizing subsidy, and I got a, uh, a note. I didn't have to pay them any per capita for a couple of years. And they would provide some training and resources. So then we started to organize in a couple of other places. So when I affiliated with the, SC, with the Rhode Island AFL-CIO, I had about 1,200 members. I had been involved in you know, maybe 30, 40 organizing drives, four or five strikes. Um, we were, I don't know how we did it. I mean, we didn't have a big staff. Rick was on the staff for a while, and I still don't know how the hell we did it. But we did it. So I'll tell you a funny story about, this is a little bit of the climate at the time. Because I was still not seen as, you know, a favorite son of the labor movement. I, I had some detractors. Um, so when I affiliated with the uh, Central Labor Council and the AFL Cereal, the Central Labor Council at the time was under the leadership of Marty Byrne, who was with the Iron Workers Union. Wonderful, actually ran for Congress, wonderful, wonderful guy. But there was enough people in the Central Labor Council that didn't like me or didn't like my union that they wouldn't let me join. I said, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm affiliated with the AFL. So, you know, sometimes you're trying to get people to join who don't want to pay. I want to pay. I want to come and su support the, the big picture here. I, the AFL, Eddie McElroy was good. He, he let me right in the door. And I was, I was, all of a sudden, I go from being a pariah to being on the executive board. I've got to tell you, the first time I asked Ed Brown at that time, who was the secretary treasurer, because I, I, my union used to give a full financial report. I said to Ed, Hey, yo, do we get a financial report? The room goes absolutely silent. Because Ed used to mumble the report. He was an absolutely honest guy, but the idea that sharing information was new to them. So anyway, when I went to the Central Labor Council, and finally uh, Marty Burns says, look, we got to let him in. It's better to have him in and know what the hell he's doing than have him on the outside. So, so I go to the, after a couple of years, I go to a meeting. This is just the, the climate that we're in at the time still was a little conservative. We were, we were, a number of us, Dwayne was involved, and we were trying to get plant closing legislation. That's a pretty radical idea. Doesn't that seem radical at the time it, to you right now that if a plant closes, they would give notification to the workers and provide benefits and job training opportunities? I go to the Central Labor Council and said, listen, I think we should support plant closing legislation. Absolute silence. Why would we do that? Well, because it would protect the workers. If the plant, now, at this time, you know, Bill, we were, a lot of plants were closing. This was a big issue at the time. Anyway, uh, they didn't support it. They thought it was a little too radical, and some of the employer community wouldn't like it, and it would disrupt things. I said, okay. So anyway, that was a little bit of the climate at the time. Um, I have a couple of points. I just want to. I 
don't usually check my notes, but I'm going to do that. Uh, oh, I, I, oh, just two. Maybe one more story before Scott. One more story. Okay. Uh, which one am I going to pick? Pick your best one. All right. I'm going to pick. I'm going to pick a story in memory of one of one of I believe one of the great organizers of Rhode Island that no one ever will know. Sister Canellis. Sister Adelaide Canellis. I met Sister Canellis. I was I. After I met her, we set up a new group called the Portuguese Workers Association. We were always setting up groups. I was kind of like Henry Shelton. I did more groups than he did. But Sister Canillas was a Portuguese immigrant nun from St. Elizabeth's uh, Church in Bristol, Rhode Island. I don't know. Somehow we got connected. She, re- uh, she just loved people. She was great. Every once in a while, if you lost faith in God, you'd have to watch her drive and you know there's a God. Because there's no other way. There's no other way that, that, that she would ever got from point A. She called me up one time. She was in Boston. She was going from Bristol to Warren. But um, So I get a call from her one day. And I had, I had made a commitment that I wouldn't organize, unorg- organize the organized. American Tourister had a was a big plant luggage factory in Bristol, Warren. They had one in Providence. 75%, 80% Portuguese workforce. She calls me and she says, George, George, these workers are being mistreated. We have to do something. I said, what do you want to do? (laughs) Their contract is coming up and we should file for an election. Okay. You really think we should do this? He says, yeah, we, uh, we, we have to do this. We have to f- they, they want a, a new union, and it's got to be us. I said, all right, well, see, why don't you get some people together, and we'll see what we can do. So I go down to St. Elizabeth's Church in the basement. There's 300 workers there. I said, okay. So she said, we have to change the union. The contract's coming up. So we start filing cards. Now, I get a call from a guy who wants to meet with me and Sister Canellis. How'd you get my phone number? That should tell you something. Well, they were part of, and I'm trying to get the name right, because it was a mob-related union out in New York. It was the, wasn't the Jewelry Workers Union. No, it was the Luggers and Tourists. It was a really crazy name. They were clearly connected, and they'd like to meet with us. We met at a little motel over on Route 6, and we sat, we sat down with them. And uh, they were like, uh, they were pretty upset that we were trying to organize this group of people. And they made it very clear that this was going to be a very uh, hostile relationship. But then they also made it very clear that you might have support here, but you don't have the support up on the, the other two plants. There was one in Lincoln and one in North Providence. And so anyway, we actually ended up negotiating with them. <laughs> and I felt, yeah, I felt like, yeah, I'm probably okay as long as I stay close to Sister Canellis while we were meeting. <laughs> I didn't think they'd mess with her, but so I never went to a meeting without her. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, we ended up getting a deal where they translated, they, they elected new stewards, they got a raise for people, they put a health and safety committee in, 
They translated the Constitution and the contract into Portuguese. So we didn't achieve what we wanted to achieve, but we read the tea leaves and we weren't going to win the election. So we got the deal we could. So anyway, Sister Canolis, still fighting for people all those years. She's, uh, she was a marvel. Um, so that was, the, that was the organizing that at least I was involved in at the time. And I'm, uh, I've always partial to organizers. I, I brought some uh, things to take them on the way out. Uh, we should remember someone today that most people probably don't know. Fred Ross Jr. was a tremendous organizer, the son of Fred Ross Sr. who trained Cesar Chavez. Uh, I, have, I brought Fred Ross Sr.'s uh, Axiom for Organizers, which was the Bible for the organizing that went on in the farm workers community. So in memory of all organizers, take a book and read about it. So anyway, those are my thoughts for the day. I'm glad you left me a couple of minutes. <laughs> well, if you, get, if you come up short, I got two more stories. <laughs> and I was on the Central Labor Council before George, before they let George in. And there was an Irish immigrant named Peter Joy who earmarked him as the Great Satan. That's what he called him, the Great Satan. Because he was out organizing people who the others were too damn lazy to go do, but they didn't want anyone else to do it because it would make them look bad. How do you win a situation like that? Anyway, as I look around the crowd tonight, there's a lot of people here who remember the late 1960s and uh, 1970s when uh, students were very, very active in the colleges and universities and high schools all over uh, America over a plethora of different uh, issues. Uh, it might be student power uh, against the war in Vietnam, civil rights, women's rights, gay liberation, I mean, the list went on and on and on. The sad thing was that he only went to college for so long. Some people dragged it out and are still going. But, um, <laughs> you know, four years, and maybe you got a master's degree. And, but at some point, that activism, you would think, might have dried up because you weren't on campus anymore. But there were just as many groups waiting for you when you got, out, got your diploma to sign you up. Now, some of them were very uh, solitary in the sense that they just had one issue, the environment, or uh, women, or whatever it might be, or unions. Other ones were much more Catholic, I guess, in, in their approach. And so when they parked in the garage, you got out of the car, you had a roof over your head, and they were taking up all of those issues. You didn't have to go a different place every night of the week to get it all in. And of course, a lot of these were uh, much more radical, uh, left-wing uh, organizations because they had a broader scope and, and sense of uh, the larger uh, framework. Anyway, for a lot of us who got involved, particularly here in Rhode Island, uh, joined a group called the Revolutionary Union, and um, <laughs> we still have one supporter left. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> You're still a member, aren't you, Wayne? <laughs> and, um, they, and you'll hear more about this later on. Um, but there was a push. I mean, it wasn't anyone broke your, your arm. It's just that they uh, uh, pushed you towards certain things. And one of them was to uh, unionize electric boat at Quonset. And, of course, all you had to do was go down Route 95 to Connecticut, and the electric boat there was already unionized. But all the people at Quonset simply hitchhiked along 
get all the union benefits without having to pay the union dues. So they had it pretty easy in some respects. I was claustrophobic. You know, I didn't want to be in there uh, uh, welding down in the bottom of some submarine where somebody else might come in and weld a piece in and, hey, whatever happened to that guy? He's <laughs> over in the Pacific now, you know, he might still be alive. Um, but I did have a pension. I had a real desire, <laughs> don't ask me why, uh, to go to Ripta. And the reason being, I was going to be the third generation. My grandfather, an Irish immigrant, worked there in 1909 driving streetcars and trolleys. Two of his sons, particularly my Uncle Henry, became the business agent. And starting in the 1940s, he literally, physically fought his way to the top. These, the 1940s, remember it, Bill? It was brutal. These people won by how tough they were, physically how tough they were. And uh, so here I come along, the third generation. It was hard to get a job in the early 1970s. Uh, not easy. And I knew for a long time all I had to do was make a phone call, and I'd be driving a rip the bus. And eventually, when I couldn't get anything else, I figured I could still use that blue collar and get up on any platform and speak for working people. Because, hey, you drive a bus, you drive a bus. Um, the problem was, my only intention of going there was to get the blue collar, and then we'd work you know, in other areas and other things we had going on. But slowly but surely, as you might expect, you get sucked in. So even though the place was already organized, had, been, had a union since 1913, had a damn good contract, good benefits, good working conditions, you always find things. You know, it's like walking across a floor and you get a piece of, a little piece of glass in your foot. And that damn thing, you can't even see it, but it hurts like hell every time you take a step. I always say, these are the things that will get you to organize. You've got to find a way to, to bring people together, and often that's one of the things um, you look at. So 50 years ago, I got to go home. I was brought up on Elmwood Avenue, and boy, did I love driving the Elmwood Avenue bus. Route 20. My book here, I, I've got uh, one of the chapters says, Chairman Mao rides the Elmwood Avenue line. <laughs> you know, and he was there, he was. He was Billy Shakespeare, a whole bunch of different uh, unusual people. Um, so I tried to organize, as, as the whole group did, wherever we ended up going, uh, from the bottom up. And with the bus company, I always said it was from the gutter up because they had those front stairs that went down into the gutter for old people who couldn't get up. And this made it a lot easier for them. So we literally organized from the gutter up. And it's a very different story from what George portrayed, trying to start from scratch to going into a place that's already got the union tradition. But in a way, they didn't. It was almost harder to organize the disorganized than it was the unorganized, if you get my drift. And you'll see that in a minute. The other uh, thing that I had uh, going against me or going for me um, my uncle and I were good friends. He was the business agent. He was a big brute of a guy, and he was smart. There was nothing stupid or anything about that. They knew what they were doing. And um, he would go in, and when he walked in the superintendent's office, you could hear a pin drop in the lobby because they wanted to hear. And he'd bang the table. He'd throw stuff out the window. Sometimes, believe me, knock people out. I'm, I kid you not, he literally knocked management out. 
And if he didn't like you as part of the rank of file, he'd knock you out too. They, they didn't care. Anybody who showed any initiative or, or uh, willingness to uh, uh, question, <laughs> asking about the finances, oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> they didn't want to hear that. So in many ways, uh, my Uncle Henry, he was the Marlboro man. You know, he, he just rode off into the sunset uh, uh, by himself. And unfortunately, when I got there, there was no rank-and-file group to hook up with. We kind of had to cobble together maybe 10 or 12 people uh, initially. But we did something very brilliant that we had gotten out of uh, uh, back in our college days. We set up a study group. Oh, my God, a study group among the rank-and-file bus drivers. And we had about 10 or 12. This was all guys at the time. We'll see that changes. Um, and we met every week for about 10 weeks, and we read chapter by chapter Labor's Untold Story. Still one of the greatest uh, romances and, and uh, uh, soap operas that you could ever find, but it was a damn uh, good one. We went to a different house every week. We got the wives and the girlfriends to join in, and somebody would pick up a pizza. And I got to say, those 10 or 12 people stayed involved for their entire life because they had that foundation uh, that nobody else was going to uh, uh, give them. So we began doing a lot of different things in the union, uh, nothing that would get anyone too freaked out. But then an incident happened, and Ripta took over, uh, I, I shouldn't even call it a bus company, ABC Bus Company in rural Rhode Island. They had one bus, one driver, one mechanic. But the money being used to take it over was federal funds from the Urban Mass Transportation Administration. And it said you had to take those people in with their seniority at a non-union place. And they had the backing of our local union, RIPTA, state government, federal government, and God knows who else. But if those people came over, with eight or ten years of seniority, they leapfrogged all the union members that we had who had been paying dues for years just to be protected from that. But we couldn't get any support other than from the rank and file, and of course, that was the vast majority uh, of people. Anyway, we had, we had secret meetings uh, over at the Miami Cafe on Cranston Street. Let me tell you, my own members were afraid to go to the goddamn place. Oh, in a state that features more lounges, bars, and dives. This was one of the worst. We got 150 people in there, and thank God the fire inspector didn't come by. They would have thrown us all out. We voted to have a wildcat strike. And everyone knew it was coming. The company thought it was going to be the week before. We kept playing with the date. And my uncle came down one night. He was sitting there. I couldn't believe it. The moxie he had, he was afraid of nobody. But he was off by one day on the strike, too. We kept moving it so they couldn't catch us. And then we hit. And I'll never forget driving off Route 95, the Elmwood Avenue exit, 4 in the morning. I got a sore throat. My eyes are hanging out of my face. I hadn't slept. I come down about two blocks. There's Ripta. 200 people. Gates are chained. Not a single bus went out. And by the end of the day, there were 300 people there. We had about 325 drivers um, 
50, 60 mechanics, buildings and grounds, people of, uh, and we all got pretty much about the same uh, money. We won. They caved. It's amazing to me that what they couldn't do the day before, once you went on strike, oh, we can, yeah, we can, we can work that out. No, no problem. And, you know, a lot of ins and outs here. Uh, but it was obvious by then that we were going to run the union and we were almost going to run the company if anybody wanted to. Um, <laughs> you see the shape ripped us in today. No, thanks. Um, but um, so we, we, we won that battle. The uh, two people who came over from the other company, they took their no rating and went to the bottom of the list. They could keep those jobs they took with them, two of them. We didn't care about that. But we didn't want anybody doing it only because it set a precedent. You know, two people out of 325 bus drivers is not a lot, but uh, it makes a difference uh, in what you do. Anyway, so it was a tremendous conflict. The membership was joyous. They spit on management officials, and after a while, they began coming around the back door to sneak into their own offices because they were afraid. They swear at them. They threw stuff. They spit on their cars. Oh, it was wonderful. Uh, and how a fr and it went on for months. And we used that tact every time a problem developed. My buddy Pat McCarver used to call him uh, Pat the Dime. He'd go back to the phone booth, call the Providence Journal, and say, "Looks like we got another wildcat here." Hang up. You could hear the phone ring. Right, the management <laughs> office was right next door, and they'd be freaking out. What's going on? And um, you know, we threatened to do it all over again, and usually um, we won. But the international got involved, because my uncle had been part of that forever. And they sent an international vice president in, which usually means they're going to put, uh, put you in a receivership. Wait six months and put the old crowd back in to try to bring harmony and peace. Well, Jimmy LaSalle, who was an international vice president, soon to become the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, uh, nationally came in. I knew him a little bit. He was a nice guy. And he called a meeting. The union had not had such a large meeting since the days of the trolleys. Four or five hundred people showed up. People were coming in off the street. Good entertainment. It was the damnedest thing you ever saw. Uh, and Jimmy LaSalle, out of New Jersey, I'm watching him. He's trembling. He's, he's facing this hostile mob. He's shaking. His voice is quivering. And I'm thinking to myself, could you ever believe somebody in New Jersey was afraid of Rhode Island? <laughs> they used to bring their dead mob killings down here and bury them in Rhode Island. But he was, a, he was a good guy. And he got up and he said, listen, I'm not here to do anything to anyone. I just want to bring labor peace and bring the sides together and get back to work and do whatever we got to do. And uh, so he, he turned it around. Eventually, he became one of our greatest supporters because he could see the, the uh, momentum uh, for the unions were, were shifting. We did every crazy thing in the book, some of them local at the union, some of them in a larger uh, perspective. AAA refused, if you can, American Automobile Association wouldn't give one cent 
out of the 25 cents a gallon gas tax for mass transit. It all went to highway construction. Well, we did a little digging. Sounds like something George would have done. Um, they had a board, corporate people, dirty folks, two women, a person of color, and 27 white guys. <laughs> they, they had an election every year, but only 10 people at a time. And we put together a group to run against them. Now, we didn't want to win. Who the hell would want that stupid job? <laughs> but we wanted to put the, uh, uh, send a, a cannonball across their bow just to wake them up, that this was going to be an annual event. Well, we ran with 10 people. Five of them were women, a couple people of color, all working class folks, all have blue collars. So were you one of them? No, I thought you were. Um, anyway, well, we, they held the, 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 um, the vote at the Superman building, 5 o'clock on a Friday night. They bust all these corporate hacks in by school bus. They were afraid to hire a Ripta bus because they knew they'd never get there. <laughs> well, we lost 5,000 to 1. Who cared? They thought they won. Oh, stupid. We, everything worked out the way we planned. The next year at the legislative session, the general manager of Ripta called me. He says, you won't believe this. I said, I might. He said, they have just agreed to give two cents of that gasoline tax to Ripta. So we were doing Ripta's water lifting because we wanted to make sure there'd be money and funds available for us to have a, a, a job when all that came around. Company complained about we weren't inspecting the buses in the morning. We were supposed to look five minutes. And um, one morning, hey, you want the buses inspected? We're going to do it. Four o'clock in the morning, we had five or six of our mechanics, the entire executive board. They were pulling buses off the road, no brakes, uh, ball tires. They wrote 50 buses up for inf mechanical infractions. And I remember the general manager getting there about 6 in the morning, going like this, rubbing his eyes, going, what the hell are you doing? I said, Bill, here's a notice you put out. Remember? Check the buses. I said, how's that going for you? <laughs> the buses were lined up Elmwood Avenue. Oh, my God. Anyway, so just to give you an idea, we did crazy stuff. And then the Greyhound bus strike started. Handful of members in Rhode Island, part of our international, but not part of our local. They needed help. We wanted to do it. We wanted to whack, we wanted to muzzle the hound. Greyhound. Um, and we had a lot of our mechanics used to get off at 430. They came down by the dozens. Uh, and they knew about buses. So they had a couple of scabs come in. And they brought the Providence police in. And um, there was a major in the Providence, in the PPD, who was lefty. He was pro-labor. He was a major. And he was, in, he was in charge of the squad down at Greyhound, which was downtown at the time. And he comes over to me, knows me. My dad was a Providence cop. He knew my father. He said, Scott, I'm taking the squad around the corner to Dunkin' Donuts. I said, what took you so long? But he said, we're going to be going about 15 minutes. He said, do whatever you want. He said, I don't give a goddamn what you do. Blow the buses up. He said, just when I come back and tell you to stop, you've got to stop. I said, oh, what a deal that is, huh? Jesus. Boy. Well, he comes back 15 minutes later. 
Every bus tire was flat. Got this from George. Gallon of paint on the windshield. Doors pulled off because the mechanics know how to do all this stuff. And the, the bus looked like it got carpet bombed. And the major walks over to me and he says, if I'd known you could dissemble a bus so quickly, he said, I would have waited another five minutes so you could have finished the job. <laughs> this guy was surreal. He died about six months ago. And the waiting line of all kinds of community and labor and other people stretched a couple of blocks at his wake. You know, God bless him, man. There, there are still people out there that uh, do that uh, stuff for you. So anyway, one other story, and then let me just summarize what I think is important with all this uh, uh, craziness that we did. Um, the international would come to love us. They used to try and get political action money. They used to sell Committee on Political Education pins for $2 a year. You couldn't get 10 people to give you $2. Forget about it. They didn't believe in political action. They didn't, they didn't trust anybody. We showed up again at our usual gathering time, the executive board, all 10 of us at 4 in the morning. People said, oh, my God, another strike? No, not today. No, no, we got something else to do. We collected, signed people up for political action. Now, instead of the $2 at a time, we said, let's ask for 50 cents a week which gives you $26 a year per person. And maybe we'll get 50% of the people to do it, which is a nice chunk of money. 90% signed up. We took in $10,000 a year, $20,000 per election cycle, and we helped elect good friends of ours like uh, Jerry Egan um, uh, to condemn American aid and to keep the money here and not support strong men down there. Passed unanimously. Went to the Providence Central Labor Council. First labor council in the country to take a stand on that. All kinds of publicity. Right through. And then a carefully orchestrated resolution to the Las Vegas Convention of the Amalgamated. Um, all the I's were dotted. All the T's were crossed. Sent in way ahead of time. I was, I was named head of the Political Action Committee. That's like one of their the strongest uh, groups there. A lot of Canadians. They hated American foreign policy. Unanimous for the resolution. Down with the dictatorships. Well, before I had a chance to make my report, this is in front of hundreds of people, some snake slithers in from the Department of Justice. You won't find his name. You won't find his talk in the, re in the uh, minutes of the meeting. And they did everything. But that was left out. And he got up and, oh, I remember, he was slick. And he said, these are good people you have making this announcement. But he said they're naive because they don't realize they're helping international communism. That's what he said. <laughs> and then he snuck out like a, like a skunk. You know, he said a couple of words and boom, got out. I was right there. And I probably gave one of the greatest extemporaneous talks of my, my, my long life and said, who the hell are we to have to tremble because some lapdog from Ronald Reagan's administration came in here to tell us, a free and democratic trade union, what we're going to do and not going to do because we're not listening to them. You know, it went on like that. Holy <laughs> crap. The place went berserk. 
people stand and yell and scream, and I don't think there was a negative vote to it. But it just goes to show you what you can do, uh, do with all of these things. Let me say that um, it paid off tremendously. Uh, when we all ran for election, we took every seat there was on the executive board. The turnout at RIPTA, 95% of all workers voted. The only ones not there were in the hospital or in Florida. <laughs> that was it. So um, I just want to say there's one thing that, that, that I take away from all of this and which I think will always be important, whether it's now or later. And, and that is to make sure if you run a union or you're part of a union or you're an activist, that there's people understand there's something for everyone to do with the union structure. You don't have to go to a confrontational picket line. You don't have to go and be, uh, get in a fist fight. You don't have to become a martyr. You know, the Catholic Church has got enough of those. We don't need any more of them in labor. But we had for people a committee that visited the sick in the hospital and at home, and they brought a food gift certificate from the unionized style market on Pontiac Avenue. There are people that did that. They liked doing that. We had people that organized turnouts for wakes and funerals. Ooh. You know, you drive up in a ripped up bus with 30 people in a uniform, just like the firefighters and the cops. Boy, that's a very uh, uh, amazing uh, thing. Uh, we had people on political action, you know, to endorse folks. We had a committee for every. We had bowling shirts. We had baseball shirts with the union name on it. Whatever you could think of, we did it. We had a two-man band. Let me tell you, you wouldn't book them for the closet over there. <laughs> but they played solidarity forever before every union meeting. And we changed the union meetings from Monday night at the racist Elks Hall to a VFW spot and went from Monday night to Sunday morning at 10 o'clock to eliminate the inebriated. <laughs> they, they couldn't drink that way, so I became the Antichrist, too. So, was, <laughs> so just remember, there's something for everybody there. <clears throat> no problem is too small because you can merge them together and bring people together uh, to fight with that. The only downside, I would say, is that here we are 50 years later, and the greatest thing we can be doing is cheering for the Democrats. Oh, God. <laughs> but anyway, thank you. We heard a lot of great stories. Uh, thank you, George and Scott. We're going to take a, a short break, like five to seven minutes, um, but we've got three uh, people on the second panel, and we want to make sure we give them all time uh, to tell us some more great stories. So grab some coffee, uh, take a pit stop, and uh, we'll reconvene in seven minutes. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Labor Vision. We appreciate your input and encourage your comments. Labor Vision can be seen on this channel three times each week. Tuesday at 7 p.m., Thursday at 8 p.m., and Saturday at 5 p.m.